think it's really important, Luke, to not maintain a list of wrongs. Do your work and forgive yourself. There's an internalized shame that many men and women carry that because of past mistakes, you don't feel like you are somebody or that you're worthy, um, that what you say just could never matter. And I find that that shame is like battery acid that just corrodes you from the inside out till there's nothing left of your self-esteem. So I think self-forgiveness is of primary importance. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome to this episode of Crazy Wisdom. I am thrilled to be joined by Martin Lassoff. Martin is a men's guide. He's a shadow work senior mentor and practitioner. He's a seeker of truth. Martin also is a dear friend of mine, a mentor, and just a, a wonderful character in my life. Welcome to the show, Martin. Great to be with you today, Luke. Yes, yes. So you know, Martin, there's a lot of places we could go with this conversation. Our stories have been interwoven, and I feel like I've kind of followed some of the threads that you've followed in your life, in your your quest for truth. But, you know, I think that the place really to start is where we met. So many years ago, 20 plus years ago, you were leading a men's weekend through the Mankind Project. And I was quite young. <laughs> I think I was probably 22, 23 years old. And I was probably the youngest guy there by at least a decade. Probably so. There's a lot of middle-aged men there and not a lot of 20-something young bucks. And I just remember immediately feeling kind of a kinship with you. And you, you kind of tucked me under your, <laughs> your wing and showed me some of the ways of, of kind of leading men to the deeper places of their heart and to the point where you offered this kind of special place in a particular ceremony. You created a little space for me as the youngest man there as part of a ceremony, right? That I, I had a special role. You know, what that did for me was just helped me really see this path about being a guide to helping people go into the deeper places of their heart. And it was kind of representative of that era of my life where I had just started to wake up kind of spiritually and there were these just badass, totally awake and alive men that were in my life that were calling me into a deeper place in my heart, in my mind, into my shadows, into my stillness, into my practices. And you were, you always have been such an important character in that. So thrilled to have you on the show today. It's, I'm equally thrilled to be here with you, Luke. It's been a, a long journey that probably began, I'm going to take a stab at it, maybe 26, 25 years ago when we first met on a new warrior training adventure. And I remember clearly the moment you speak about where I did create a small ceremony right before what we call the hero's journey where I invited you into the center of the circle as the youngest person in the room. 
And I believe I looked around and found the oldest person in the room and had you both stand in front of each other. And um, part of the introduction to that process was to juxtapose the oldest man and the youngest man together and the challenges that life bring. And um, how do you want to be when you get a little bit older? Do you want to be pulling up your socks and have egg on your face or shaving a point off your golf game? Or do you want to make a difference in the world? And uh, you were a big part of that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's these moments that there can be so much magic and meaning created in these in these kind of retreat environments where we can use the power of intention and having this kind of circle of men in this case uh, that just forces people into a deeper place into their being. And, you know, I think the other, the other, other element that that represents for me is mentorship and how important mentorship was for me in those early days. And just curious, you know, as somebody who I've long considered a mentor and a friend and you know, started much more as mentorship. And as we've, we've both gotten a bit older, it's felt more like a, a friendship. But I'm just curious, you know, for you, you know, what do you view as like some of the elements of really impactful mentorship? Sure. I'd like to start off by saying that I can even recall over the course of our friendship where we had some major disagreements, but it was never at the cost of our friendship. And I think that is one solid quality right there that when you really care about somebody or you have somebody who you are in a close relationship with, that you will have differences. And for whatever reason, you or I never had the need to put our friendship on the line because of our differences. We just kind of took a deeper look at it, knew we had a difference of opinion and moved on with our friendship. So Mentorship in particular, I, I do believe that um, probably a word that would describe it the most is a bridge maker. A mentor, if he's doing his job, will first of all utilize what I call the law of attraction. There has to be something attractive about the mentor that attracts the mentee to him, or that wouldn't even be able to exist in the first place. And would suggest that a lot of our mentorship came from some of my spiritual background that I think you probably detected in me from uh, the many years that I sat in meditation consistently every day. And just the spatial awareness of that I know you have when, when you step in a room to look around and see who's in that room and figure out just with your radar mechanism who you might be attracted to. So the law of attraction comes into play in mentorship. And then I think the next law that I've always known about it is what I call the law of sustenance. There has to be something in the mentor relationship that sustains the relationship so that um, whoever's being mentored, the mentee has something to, to nurture himself on and to learn and grow in his, not just spiritual capacity, but in his life and um, his relationships, um, how he applies himself to ask about every aspect of, of his life, his work, his routines, his relationships with his significant other. And then comes probably the final part. It's called the law of deliverance, that a true mentor never really delivers somebody to himself, to his own personality or 
he delivers whoever he's mentoring to a much higher place for that mentee's personal self so that it doesn't become cultish and uh, you wind up idealizing or putting a mentor on a pedestal. Um, I think we both learned from a mentor that we both have. I always love this saying that whatever you idealize will always betray you. So that's uh, that's what I know mentorship to be. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and I mean, I in this conversation, I'd love to, you know, play the tape forward a bit around, you know, your all the work you've done, hearing a bit more about what you've learned on your journey through men's work, through shadow work, which we share that that kind of work together lineage. But maybe we could go back a bit further in time, and I'd love to just, you know, understand some of your early mentors or teachers. I know. One area that we do share some background is in Kundalini yoga, although you had the the privilege of of you know knowing Yogi Bhajan, and um, I'm curious if that was where you kind of initially came into this world of you know examining deeper truth and moving into deeper practices, or if there were people and practices that were before your time with Kundalini yoga. Disclaimer first. Um... Some of the things that I'll talk about right now are things that should probably only be used in a therapeutic environment with a qualified therapist, because in today's world, they are finding that things such as LSD, ketamine, psilocybin have a um, really good way of removing trauma that typically can't get to with regular therapy. So that's my disclaimer for my beginning. I I started out this journey probably at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where I was going to college. And I remember back then that I was a chronic asthmatic from the time I was a child. I used to carry one of those puffers that when my asthma would come up, I'd have to take a couple squirts in the mouth. And I had a lot of shame about that because it could happen on a date. It could happen just in a classroom. It was just about anywhere. And I've had that ever since I was a child, which I believe came from some deep trauma from my home environment. I was suffocating there. So I heard about this doctor. His name was Dr. Sheldon Deal. And he was one of the original chiropractors that did that kind of muscle testing. And he did some testing on me versus being just a bone cruncher. And he said, I have this thought, Martin, that if you become a vegetarian but and stop eating meat, that your asthma will go away. But first you have to fast for 10 days on Somi's bulk intestinal products and just clean yourself out. So I drank those things for 10 days with mixing it in water and cleaned out and became a vegetarian, and my asthma did, in fact, go away. I was allergic to meat, I suspect, at that time. So being in that culture of being a vegetarian also brought me in close contact with many people that practice meditation at that time. Remember now, we're in the 60s, and you had people traveling around like Paramahansa Yogananda and Maharishi Mahesh Yoga, Swami Satyatananda, and um, Maharishi Mahesh Yoga was touring most of the campuses in the United States along with celebrities. And when he came to Tucson, he came with Paul Horn, the flautist, and had this beautiful ceremony. And I got my secret mantra. 
think it was like 50 bucks back then. It was pretty cheap. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was really grooving on that. And, And so I said, well, wow. Maybe I'll go try some yoga, too. And I I did that. Went to the park. And along with that, there was huge psychedelic movement going on at the time with Ram Dass and um, a guy named Steve Gaskin, who used to travel around the country in a school bus called the Merry Pranksters. I don't know if you ever heard of them. (laughs) No, I I can already see the picture in my mind, though. The school but they came. They came through uh, through use, uh, Tucson, excuse me. And uh, I lived out in a place called Las Lomas after I got out of my fraternity gig, <laughs> and, um, and it was way out in the desert in Tucson, the Sonora Desert. And they parked their school bus outside of my house. Ramdas showed up, and we all took LSD, and it was a wild time out there in the desert. I remember the experience deeply because Ramdas always talked about what he called these bardos, that when you take LSD, you go through them. And so they left, but I continued to take some acid on weekends. I never did it to party. I always did it for the spiritual experience. And I remember the last time I took it, I was out at a place called Gates Pass. My girlfriend drove me there. I wanted to see the sunset and I was watching the sunset and peeking on this LSD and man, I thought I hit like the ultimate bardo and all of a sudden it felt like somebody just punched me right in the mouth and I go, she go, baby, what's wrong with you? I couldn't even talk. The pain was like so incredible. I abscessed a tooth Mm. right when I was peeking. Oh, jeez. Yeah, bad deal. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, she had to take me for an emergency dentist appointment. And uh, they looked at my pupils and they were like the size of dimes. Oh, <laughs> the, dentist, the dentist said, what's wrong with it? And I told her to say that I, I took an amphetamine to study. Hmm. I couldn't tell them it was acid. And so meanwhile, I'm high on acid. And I don't know if you've ever had a root canal. Oh, yeah. But they drill holes in your in your tooth, and they have these little things that they go in and out and pull the nerve out. Oh, and I'm just looking, 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 in a really bad trip. Oh, man. <laughs> that is that really is bad trip. Epically bad. Wow. Yeah, but yeah. So I didn't take acid after that for a while. <laughs> 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 However, I did uh, then proceed to uh, start practicing Kundalini yoga and uh, liked it so much that I moved into uh, an ashram there and lived there for the last two years of my university studies till I, till I graduated. Got up every morning at 4.30 or 4, cold shower, meditated, did yoga, strict vegetarian, just got to see the world through a different view. Then when I graduated, I went to see Yogi Bhajan, who I met. He gave me the name of Sadhu, one who has perfected himself, which I thought, oh, that's a tough <laughs> deal. <laughs> deal to live up to. <laughs> 
and uh, he sent me to Houston. He asked me to go to Houston to open an ashram here where after getting here and finding a place, I hitchhiked actually to Houston and bought a bicycle, rode around the streets looking for a property, found one and asked a man, I said, listen, if you let me live there rent-free for six months and you give me the supplies, I'll fix the place up. So we had it free for six months. And in the meantime, I met this disc jockey from one of the big radio stations in town, which were pretty big then. Disc jockeys were popular. And he got on there and said, there's going to be free yoga classes at 508 Saul Ross. And the line stretched around the block the very first night we opened. So that took me on a 30-year journey, Luke. Actually, 27. till. Um, I came to this place where I just had this sense that I could stay there in the old comfortable, yet I really didn't feel like I was going to get much more out of it. And I was starting to have some doubts about Yogi Bhajan from some things I'd see when he'd come to stay at my home and teach here in Houston. And so I knew it was time to go and it took me a couple of years to undo all my financial obligations there and make sure I left in a good way. Yeah. I'm curious what it was initially about either him or the practices that were so compelling to you that would have you, you know, essentially move to Houston to kind of serve that, you know, serve him, serve that community. What was it? The attraction, the law of attraction, right? Like what was it about him that had that would have this become, you know, almost a three-decade service for you? Looking back, you know, an ounce of hindsight's worth, what, a pound of gold? Is that the saying? Something like that. I didn't have the gift of hindsight at that time. I was operating strictly on my past, and he was very charismatic, first of all. And uh, I was coming out of the frying pan from a very abusive father and home relationship. And um, not really knowing that at my age, I just was attracted to another abusive male, I believe. I, he had many good qualities, but I'm so happy that whatever guides me on the inside told me it's time to go because there are so many things that I read about today that uh, are becoming apparent that he didn't have the highest quality ethic that I think he espoused to have. Unfortunately, he being my role model created some issues for me too, where there were times as the head of the ashram that I even acted out and um, went outside of my marriage to have affairs with some of my students, which I'm not proud of, but uh, I was unconscious at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious what, meaning you make of it today looking back on that era and both the kind of the abuse and the manipulation and the charisma that he you know that was present as part of his being but then also just your own kind of choices during that particular era what do you like looking back how do you make sense of that it's it's bifurcated <laughs> It best. Uh, I have a lot of gratitude for the things that I learned. I, I got pretty close at times to Yogi Bhajan, and there were a couple times he would send me to India to help prepare for his trips there. 
And some of the things that I got to do as his representative when he was on his way to India to do whatever he would do there were absolutely incredible. I, I would be met at the airport tarmac by these group of men called Nahung Sikhs, who were the old warrior class of Sikhs who wore chain mail under their turban and carried these huge swords around. And you walk down the sidewalk with them in, in India and people step aside. And they loaded me right on the tarmac, no customs, nothing. Got my suitcase off the plane and ushered me away in a Jeep to the outskirts of places in India where um, crazy. They would get up at three in the morning and go cut wood. And then uh, every night bring me a glass of milk with bung in it mm. and, put me, and put me to sleep. <laughs> so... There were a lot of experiences. Then the other experience, it was just wonderful. It, he, he said that, Sadhu, when, when you're in uh, Delhi, you need to go see Baba Nahal Singh. And you get up at two in the morning and take a rickshaw and you just go to his home and, and you just knock on the door and you keep knocking until he comes. And when he opens the door, all you're supposed to tell him is Bhajan sent me. I said, okay. So two in the morning, I'm in Delhi, and I take this little rickshaw to his home in Nuzamadine, way out in the middle of nowhere, and bang on this door. And this big fat yogi comes to the door with a loincloth on, and he goes, what, what? And uh, I go, Bajan sent me. He reaches through the door with his hand and grabs me by my shirt and pulls me in. And he takes me over to this fountain. It looks like a fountain that you would see in the plaza in Italy or Mexico with the centerpiece with water cascading out. And he grabbed a pitcher next to it and reaches in this fountain and hands me this pitcher of water, puts a little salt in it, and you go, drink. Go, what? I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get major blowout here. (laughs) Major blowout. You don't drink the water in India. So I drink that whole pitcher. He gets another one. You go drink. <laughs> I drank three, mm. and uh, and you keep drinking that water till the water coming out your other end is as clear. Number two end, mm-hmm. it's as clear as the water going in your mouth. Mm. That went on for three days. Mm. Then on the fourth day, um, he uh, gave me a neti pot. And washed my nose out, and then a string that you stick in your nostril and you pull and you mm. gra- grab it in the back of your throat. Oh, wow. And you, and you clean your sinus. So it's kind of like flossing through the sinuses, right? So through the nostril and then through your mouth. Yeah, That's- yeah, yeah. That was three days of that and drinking the water. Then on the seventh day, he gives me this like nine foot gauze tape in this bowl of water. He goes, eat. And I had to eat that whole tape. And you have to get it down within something like three or four minutes and out within five, or else it goes through that other valve that goes into your intestines. So you swallow that sucker down and you pull it out. It's all yellow. It's not white anymore. It absorbs all your stomach acid. So he taught me those three Kriyas that were the most cleansing Kriyas that were absolutely incredible. And we started doing it in our ashram. After that, when I got back from India, 
for the people who wanted to do it. What did you notice in your body, in your mind, on the other side of those seven days, those Kriyas? Like, what's the, what was the impact on you? Well, you combine that with vegetarian diet, which was usually very light, and all the Kundalini yoga breathing, the breath of fire and the Kriyas. You know, from the 60s, it was an elevated experience. Um, it got you high. And in that highness, it, it, it gave you the sense of some really deep spiritual place you were in. And it certainly created a lifestyle that was, in many ways, not creating any harm. You'd get up early, meditate, um, eat a clean vegetarian diet, teach yoga go to bed by 10, up by three. So you do that for over 27 years. It does create a spiritual sense of being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You brought some of these practices back. You, you cultivated this community in Houston that was you know, a, thriving, a thriving kundalini yoga, really like sangha, yeah? And, and then at some point, it was time to move on and, and you know, help us understand what happened next. Went to therapy. Uh -huh. I said, well, you know, on the last trip to India for Yogi Bhajan, my ex-wife, mother of my two children, had me met by a process server at the airport. I was very easy to identify with a big turban. She had already moved out and took the kids. <laughs> down. So. I knew on many levels it was time to go. One, I wanted to leave for my children because I had a choice to join whatever I wanted to join in my life. They were born into that and they did not have a choice. And I wanted to get to a place where I knew they had a choice. That was probably my main motivation. But I think looking back, Luke, there was also something else operating in me that just knew that it was time to leave there. The Operating theory when you have a teacher, especially from the East, is that uh, you serve me and you do everything that I ask. And then once I go and you go, I'm going to be waiting for you up there and I'm always going to be your teacher. I started not to buy into that. I don't, I don't really know what's going to be waiting for me when I live here. I think that's just a matter of where you want to have your faith. And uh, so I got into therapy, and the therapy quickly tuned into my issues with my father and my mother. And this therapist sent me to this woman who was holding this seminar in Austin, and she handed me a poster board and told me to go draw a history of my family of origin in a little pack of clay. And bring it back, this poster board, and we'll talk about it to the group. And I had myself with a chain around my neck going to my mother's hand and a little fence around me and my father standing over me with a belt. And when I started discussing that to everybody, I just broke down crying. First time I'd cried in a long time, mainly because yoga meditation, at least where I had studied, always said, if a thought comes, just exhale and let it go. Inhale what you want and exhale anything that no longer serves you. Well, truth be told, for me, it never really went away. Things just got shoved a little deeper, farther down. Right. 
Yeah, there, there's a term that we we call this, right? That this phenomenon that you're describing, which is spiritual bypassing, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, take a, a philosophical orientation to take us out of the embodied experience of feeling, of looking at our unexamined trauma, and just bypassing it through a you know a philosophical choice of of letting thoughts uh, dissipate, which we know is is. There's some value in it, but it, it doesn't get at the root of really, if we really want to live through wholeness, that there's all sorts of um, emotions that are stored in the body, trauma stored in the body. If left unattended, it, it can really impact us. Yes. Shadow the parts of yourself that you hide, repress, and deny were lurking in me. Mm-hmm. So those people at that seminar just picked me up and cradled me, and I had probably the first good cry. I was very stoic Mm. from all that meditation for many years. Then got back to therapy after that, reported back in how wonderful it was. And then she requested that I go do a new warrior training adventure. Mm. And I was then on to my next 27-year gig or 30-year gig. (laughs) (laughs) Could you say a little bit more about what that experience meant for you as far as a men's weekend like that? I never got any emotional support in my life for men. My father was just not there, and neither really was my mother, but I always chose to get my emotional support from the feminine, from women, and um, had a deep fear of male friendships because of the way I was abused by my father with uh, just belt beatings and craziness. Crazy was just off the charts in my home. So getting to a place where I had the ability to look at some of those deeply repressed things with men was very, very scary for me at first. Ultimately proved to be a lifesaver where I could go and uh, take a really deep look at how things would just kind of come out of me by accident, this rage that I carried inside. and. I wasn't in control of it. It was in control of me, and it would always just come out by accident. I'd pop off, and I started doing that stuff to my own kids. And uh, thank God that I got to a place, not only spiritually, but uh, in my knowledge to have a deeper understanding of how those shadows lurk inside of me and the cost in my life of not dealing with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a powerful example of what men's work can provide. And then it's like one side of the coin, right? To be initiated into our sacred masculine and to be held by a group of men to really examine our shadows in a deep way and do all of the psychotherapeutic work that uh, can heal these wounds, heal these traumas, kind of shake it out of the body and rewire some of thought processes that the trauma informs. And then it's an entirely other thing to hold other people, especially in men's work, hold other men in their own work, right? To be, not to be initiated, but to initiate men into their sacred masculinity. I'm so curious for you, like, how did that part of it come about where you were, began to, you know, be the initiator, hold others? After my initiatory weekend, within three months, I, I asked my older son to come uh-huh. and initiate. He was 17 at the time. They didn't have the 18-year-old rule, I think. 
And back then, they didn't ask anybody to play the role of your father. If you had an issue with your father, you'd pick your father out if he was in the room. Oh, shit. No shit, right. And they tied a bunch of pillows on me with rope. And um, he got to get a bat and beat the shit out of me. Whoa. And uh, this, by the way, is not how we would do this these days. <laughs> Just no, we would ask somebody to play the role of your father. Right, right. right. <laughs> However, all it ended well. Mm-hmm. So uh, at some point in that, when, when he was getting bent, I turned around and looked at him and I said, I'm just so sorry. I just didn't know how. And I really didn't know how to parent. I never learned. I learned how not to. So, uh, God, we had a huge hug and a kiss and uh, have been rather close ever since. My second son went shortly after that. And I just felt so attractive to it that I put myself on the leader track. But in that space of time, I was a rookie on a weekend, and a leader showed up on that particular weekend who was still a leader in the Mankind Project. His name was a mutual friend of ours, Cliff Barry. Cliff was on the show, by the way. If you want to go back, you can listen to Cliff's interview. Sure. I'd love to. And um, Cliff was there as a, as a fool leader, and... There was a man who was very stoic, who wasn't doing his work. And back then they had this process called putting a man on the cross where they would take his arms out and they had these timbers called a Kirby landscape timber. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm -hmm. It's like a four by four. Mm -hmm. And they take his arms up and duct tape them and then take them off to the corner, put some cobblestone behind his heels and let him just sit there and cook until he was ready to break from the physical exertion or whatever he was experiencing. And um, what nobody knew, and I didn't know at the time, was the guy was a priest. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> and um, guy was in heaven. Oh, <laughs> I mean, God. He, <laughs> oh, my God. He, he, made, he made it to the promised land. And, uh, <laughs> So this is going on for over two hours during the whole first session of carpet work. And right after they left me stay there, brought me some lunch. I'm eating in front of them. And uh, they told me not to talk to them. And then right after the break, Cliff moseys up and said to me, hey, just take that off of him. And I did what the leader said to do. And Cliff just started talking to him. And he said, well, I see your head coming down. and." I see you're rubbing your throat with your hand and it's on the inside or the outside. And he started building this metaphor in this guy's throat of a sea mine and had the guy metaphorically pull it out after I tied a cloth around his neck here and under his armpit with a knot in it. And he could pull. And the guy really did a huge piece of physical work to get it out. And uh, so impressed with that that I went to study with Cliff Barry and learned shadow work and started to apply those tools, not just in shadow work seminars, but on Warrior Weekends. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? There's a ferocity and like a, an extreme way in which men can challenge each other into greater depth of feeling, right? That's unlike any other, you know, it's just something about men coming together and, and you know, you're, you're describing some old school <laughs> versions of this, right? Like we do not necessarily put 
men on crosses having them stand on cobblestones and just you know putting them in these extremely dis- uncomfortable postures for two hours anymore this was like probably in the early 90s i'm guessing you know this is like we've learned so much more about how trauma works and how to do this in better ways but i will say at the essence there's something there that you know is really the spirit of what good good men's work can be which is using discomfort and challenge to call forth the consciousness in another man in a way that um is abnormal it's not how it that our culture functions, right? We need these sacred ritual places where discomfort is a tool for depth. I like to use the, uh, that's, that's exactly right. And I like to use the word cognitive, cognitive dissonance, excuse me, where from the moment a man comes on a new warrior training adventure, he goes through the different layers of initiation, starting with separation, then descent, then the ordeal. And then a welcome home. And uh, no part is less important than the other. Um, I like to always read the men a poem. I'll just give you the first few lines. And it starts out, this world breaks everyone. And afterwards, many are strong in the broken places. Um, Those that don't break, it kills. Strong, the weak, the brave, the young, the old. And if you're not one of those, it will assuredly break you too. And it will be in no special hurry. <laughs> so there are defining moments, I believe, that uh, men who wish to apply themselves to really taking a deep look on the inner can, can seize. They don't come often, but when they do come, they're extremely important to realize that this defining moment can change my life. Hmm. Beautiful. You know, there's the healing of the wounds of the past, right? Which often looks like healing our childhood trauma and our and our coming to peace with the way that we were raised. And there's there's other work about the as men the harm that we've caused others and our own moments of causing pain, preying on others unconsciously or intentionally manipulating the ways that we have hurt others more as adults or, you know, that was where we're, we're the ones that were the force of, of, you know, harm. And I'm just curious for you, how you've worked with that latter piece. You alluded to like making some mistakes, you know, in that period of time running the ashram. And I certainly have my own journey around causing harm, causing harm to women, causing harm to, you know, my own children. And, you know, I'm, so I'm just curious as, as a man that has, you know, 30 more years of experience with this, like, how do you relate to the part of you that has caused harm? Forgiveness. I think it's really important, Luke, to not maintain a list of wrongs. Do your work and forgive yourself. Um, I think there's an internalized shame that many men and women carry that because of past mistakes, you don't feel like you are somebody or that you're worthy, um, that what you say just could never matter. And I find that that shame is like battery acid that just corrodes you from the inside out till there's nothing left of your self-esteem. So I think self-forgiveness is is of primary importance. And the, the other important side of that is that um, 
hope. Hope can do so much. It can move a mountain. And I believe in, in hope and I believe in the goodness of, of man that if, if given a chance, I think people are basically good. Um, I've encountered evil, but when, when I think I'm looking at something that, God, I could never imagine even seeing something like this, I go, fuck, this is it's never even thought I'd see. I see horrific things processing with men and uh, how cruel, how cruel we can be to each other. Yet, seeing light come back into a man's eyes after he goes through his hero's journey has inspired me over the years to be my best. Well said, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for giving us some hope and some an invitation to forgiveness today. Um, you had mentioned that the Mankind Project, your work with the Mankind Project in men's work is 30 years on now, and that I understand that that chapter is shifting or maybe coming to an end as well. I'm curious, you know, what's next for you? You're, you said 75 and just curious, like, what does the next chapter look like, if you know? Well, I do have an inkling, Luke. One of the uh, greatest gifts I think I take away from my relationship with the Mankind Project is that they mandated me to study diversity. And I never thought I was a racist or a heterosexist or classist. Yet I could take ownership of all those things from things that I know lurked in me that I heard growing up, experienced growing up. Although I never really felt I was targeted as a white dominant culture person, I get the sense today as an older man that I get targeted. I get the sense being raised Jewish that I get targeted. And so my experience of diversity it's been a huge gift. My life today has changed immensely with who my friends are. I just don't live in my little white box, in my little white neighborhood with my little white friends and eat and entertain with my white friends. I've, I've got a huge tapestry now of people who don't look like me or talk like me. And those are the people that I've actually choose to mentor into leadership. And, um, so I plan on doing more diversity work. I plan on continuing on doing shadow work seminars for co-gender groups. And um, I don't really see myself leaving the Mankind Project, but I don't want any more titles there. I, I'd be happy just showing up and washing the dishes. So. Great. Wonderful. Well, I would look forward to seeing where this next chapter takes you. You know, maybe as a way of closing this conversation, I, you know, just back where we started around this idea of mentorship and, you know, the wisdom of, of elderhood. I'm curious if there's anything that you would want me or this audience to know from your place of experience and your place of insight and deep practice, decades and decades of practice, just leaving us with a bit of reflection from the place of, of elderhood. I've learned more from my failures, to be uh, honest here, than I've ever learned from my successes. And I believe that learning to be able to look at someone and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. What do I need to do to get it right with you? It's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my life. I don't ever trust anybody that 
thinks that they're always right because nobody can always be right. And to be able to live to that level of honesty is critically important. And it may not be the easiest way. It's probably the hardest way. But it's not the life that matters in that regard. It's the courage with which you are going to choose to live it. This is my friend, my mentor, Martin Lassoff. Martin, thank you so much for sharing your stories, your truth, your wisdom. As always, I'm a better man because of it. Thank you, Martin. Well, in closing, Luke, you're welcome. And um, truth be told, I've probably learned more from you than I could have ever have ever imparted to you the day we had the conversation about why you have chose to stick around mm-hmm. with a bunch of older men mm-hmm. and return time after time it was one of the most important conversations for me about um, paying attention mm-hmm. to who's in your field that I've ever experienced and for that I'm just so very grateful <laughs> so thank you Yeah. Thank you, my friend. I asked Martin to send me his favorite chant from his practices in Kundalini Yoga as an audio note over the phone. And I've chanted with Martin. He doesn't know this maybe, but I've chanted with with Martin for the last several years (laughs) with his voice in my ear chanting the Mool Mantra. Mool Mantra. So how about we close with a chant, my friend? Let's do it. All right. I'll follow your lead. Take a deep breath. Inhale. Satnam. <laughs> All right, my brother. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. And maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing. One thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy.